Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up on the program, we'll hear about how Wyoming doesn't follow federal guidelines meant to keep dangerously mentally ill people from buying a gun. It should be the least controversial thing that you could imagine. Also, the only safe shelter on the Wind River Indian Reservation recently closed down when its funding dried up. Story about how a county shelter is trying to fill that need in a community where sexual assault rates are overwhelming. That's massive trauma in a community with very limited resources. The head of Wyoming's Taxpayers Association is calling for a reform of the state's current tax structure. And, and get us away from some of these uh, vast swings that we've, uh, that we've experienced in the past. Join us for those stories and more on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. In Congress, Wyoming lawmakers are laying down their legislative priorities for the new year. But the state's Republicans doubt they can get much done with a Democrat in the White House. Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington of what to expect in this election year. President Obama is fresh off a quick campaign-style jaunt across the nation where he tried to rally support for his agenda which ranges from gun control to finding a cure for cancer. But Republicans, like Wyoming Senator John Barrasso, say the president started the year on the wrong foot by announcing he was taking executive action on gun control. We view them as illegal, but the president has continued to do this, running around uh, kind of uh, beyond Congress, beyond the elected representatives. He tried to do it with his uh, executive amnesty. Uh, we were able to stop that in the courts, and we're going to continue to do that along with his Second Amendment efforts. 2015 ended with a slew of bipartisan compromises on everything from cybersecurity to scrapping No Child Left Behind. Barrasso says he thinks the two parties will be able to come together on other issues this year. And uh, we've tried to do that last year with the transportation bill, with the education bill. I want to move forward with uh, bipartisan energy legislation that's come out of the Energy Committee, that uh, overwhelming bipartisan support. It's important for Wyoming, and I'm going to work in a bipartisan way to get that uh, passed. Others in the GOP aren't predicting such a rosy outlook. We asked Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis where she thinks Republicans in Congress can work together with the president in this new year. Oh, oh man, that's a tough, that is a really difficult question. Lummis says this year in Washington will be focused on next year. I think that a lot of the major legislation that we want to uh, shape uh, is not going to be acceptable to President Obama, and we'll have to wait until there's a new president in 2017. Besides his gun control executive action, President Obama did try to strike a bipartisan chord on everything from education to technology issues. In his State of the Union address a couple weeks ago, the president also extended an olive branch to the GOP. I believe a thriving private sector is the lifeblood of our economy. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. There is red tape that needs to be cut. There you go. Yeah. Lummis isn't buying that line, though. I don't believe for a minute that uh, President Obama really believes that or intends to do that. In the Senate, there are plans afoot to make some institutional changes that could have a lasting impact. 
Republican leaders are discussing making some tweaks to the filibuster rule in order to foster more debate in Washington. Meanwhile, senior Senator Mike Enzi, who chairs the Budget Committee, wants to change the way Washington does budgeting. We need to do one budget at a time and have the people that are particularly interested in that one get to talk about the unintended consequences of that kind of spending and uh, spend a little more time on prioritizing and eliminating. Enzi also wants to make budgets last for two years, like they do in Wyoming. He says the proposal is picking up steam. One of them would be the tough ones to pass, and we'd cover those six right after an election. And then we'd cover the six easy ones just before an election. And that way the appropriators get to do something both years. And uh, that, that seems to be a little more favorable to them than working hard one year and then not having anything but oversight to do the next year. But since it's an election year, it's unlikely the president will have many bills hitting his desk prior to November. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Just 1% of Wyoming students take K-12 virtual education classes, and the vast majority of those online learners are full-time at one of the state's two virtual schools. Last year, the State Department of Education launched a task force to expand and improve online learning. The group found a number of things that need to change. As we heard in the previous story in our virtual education series, one is the lack of transparency in student performance data for full-time virtual schools. Another, as Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports in the final story in our series, is a lack of part-time virtual education. At Powell High School, students can blend their classroom learning with an online course or two. They could be taking a foreign language such as German that we don't offer, Um, They can be taking some science classes that we don't offer. Kevin Mitchell is superintendent at Park County School District 1. His students take classes online through Florida Virtual School, which serves more than 200,000 students worldwide, most of them part-timers. Mitchell says it's worth it, not only for the new subject matter, but also because students are learning how to learn online. We want to make sure that we're preparing our students to be able to meet those challenges out there. Last year, there were only about 115 part-time virtual learners in the whole state, according to the Wyoming Department of Education. For the most part, when Wyoming kids want to learn online, they leave their school district and enroll from home at one of the full-time virtual programs. Mitchell says he's trying to stay ahead of the curve. We see that if we're not going to provide opportunities for our students in-house, they have multiple, multiple opportunities to leave us and get an education online. The idea is we're trying to minimize that necessarily having to happen, right? Because it may be that a kid doesn't necessarily need to take all courses online. They just want to take one or two or three. WDE's Laurel Ballard helped lead the distance education task force requested by state lawmakers last year. The group says part-time online courses need to expand. 93% of Wyoming educators surveyed said they would use them if they were available statewide. We haven't had a whole lot of success in getting that moving in the state. Ballard and the task force report have proposed some fixes. WDE Chief Academic Officer Brent Bacon says it needs to be easier for districts to find and enroll in these one-off courses, and prices must be lower. Districts are paying out big bucks for kids if they're getting a a one- or a two-class part-time model. Hopefully these recommendations come in and help those districts at a cheaper price. 
The task force proposed a course catalog and learning management system run by the department. WDE would help districts develop virtual education classes and offer them to other districts statewide. Bacon says by banding together, districts would likely pay less than they do now. Our hope that this model would bring in Wyoming teachers from around the state teaching what they do best, but in an online system to kids. That sort of model has worked elsewhere. Jubal Yenny was a superintendent in Northeast Tennessee, where 15 school districts shared resources and expertise through virtual education. We actually had a program where we hired a physics teacher and we were able to do distance learning with a school system that was 25, 30 miles away. So we were offering the course and they were taking it. Some of those kind of collaboration things worked very well and I think would work very well in Wyoming. Yenny is now the superintendent in Albany County. He says there's not much online or blended learning happening in Laramie right now. In some states, high school students are even required to take online classes to graduate. Yenny says he hopes the state's proposed efforts boost virtual learning and let Laramie teachers impact students statewide. We do have a great deal of qualified, wonderful, capable teachers that I think would embrace the concept of, of supporting online learning throughout the state and you know, in some of these rural areas that are unable to hire a, a physics chemistry teacher, for instance. But it's unclear when that day will come. Most of the state task force's recommendations can only move forward with new legislation. So far, lawmakers have not taken any action on the report. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. When we come back, several abandoned mines need cleaning up. The Taxpayers Association says that Wyoming may want a discussion on revenue. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Across the country, there are thousands of abandoned coal mine sites needing cleanup. And around half of the money collected to do that work comes from Wyoming coal production. Over $100 million in 2014. But that funding is getting harder to come by, largely because the government pays to reclaim old mines by exacting a fee on new mines. With coal production slowing down in Wyoming and other energy-rich regions, there's less money to clean up the sins of coal mining's deep and dirty history. For Inside Energy, Reed Frazier of Allegheny Front shows us what coal has left behind in Pennsylvania. About an hour south of Pittsburgh, Eric Cavazza scrambles up a steep hillside of loose rocks and pebbles. Get up here. There is a wooded hollow over this way. Cavazza is head of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection's Abandoned Mine Program. He's leading me up a coal refuse pile. It's basically a hill made out of coal mine tailings. There used to be a mine here in the small village of Fredericktown. This pile is all that's left of it. And this is all the waste material which was trammed back up on the hill. They had a big conveyor that brought it back up and just dumped it. The pile literally backs up onto people's houses here. Hardly any trees will grow on it. It's unstable, and it's a nuisance for the town below it. The material erodes off here. It erodes into the river. It erodes into small streams. It blocks uh, the storm sewer system in the towns. 
the pile was created before modern environmental regulations required mines to clean up their mess. Decades ago, companies just left piles like these behind when a mine stopped making money. Pennsylvania has been left with hundreds of these sites, the most of any state in the country. We were a leader in mining for, for a very long time. Fueled a couple world wars and the Industrial Revolution. Um, so, unfortunately, we're left with many problems from that. Cavazza would like to clean up this pile, but his funding source keeps shrinking. What's happening to that money? Lots of things. The budget sequester implemented by Congress a few years ago has taken millions out of the state's cleanup program. Also, there's this. The federal government pays for abandoned mine cleanup by assessing a fee on current coal production in places like Wyoming. In 2014, for instance, that state generated more than half of the cleanup funding for the whole country. But coal production is at its lowest point in 30 years in the U.S., so funding for cleanup is also down. Andy McAllister is with the Western Pennsylvania Coalition for Abandoned Mine Reclamation. We need every scrap of money we can get in this state to fix this problem. Pennsylvania officials estimate the slowdown in coal will lead to about a 6% decline in mine cleanup money this year. The shortfall in funding will slow efforts to clean up what is essentially a slow-motion environmental catastrophe in the region. Abandoned strip mines, refuse piles, and mine drainage have poisoned thousands of miles of streams in coal country. Paul Zemkevich is a water scientist at West Virginia University. A lot of these refuse piles are in fairly remote areas, up in headwater locations, and because the acid is, is so concentrated coming out of these refuse piles, even though the volume is not gigantic, uh, they can wipe out many miles of headwater streams that would otherwise be very valuable. Pennsylvania alone has 5,000 miles of streams that have been impaired by mine runoff from places like the Fredericktown Waste Pile. By simply grading the pile, capping it with soil, and seeding it with grass, the state could dramatically improve the water quality coming off of it. Cavazza's group did just that with a nearby pile last year. One reason why this site is so pressing for Cavazza is that it isn't just in some remote place. This dump is in the middle of a town, Fredericktown. Just ask Julie Bundy. She lives literally across the street. The slate dumps. Yeah, when we talk about where we live, we live across from the slate dumps. Everybody knows where that is. Um, I think it's just something that people have accepted as being part of the community. Standing on her porch, Bundy says the pile isn't so bad during the summer. The leaves on the trees make it so you almost can't see the pile. I know that my neighbor told me at one time it was a farm, and uh, there, it was, there was apple orchards and everything on that property, and it was very beautiful at one time, and then this happened. Bundy thinks it would be beautiful if someday the big pile across the street simply goes away. For Inside Energy... I'm Reed Frazier. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on energy issues. Thanks to a downturn in energy prices, Wyoming lawmakers are in a bind. As legislators prepare for the upcoming legislative session, they will likely have to cut the budget 
dip into reserves and possibly divert money from flowing into reserve accounts in order to pay for the next two years. The problem is that the economic downturn may last a while. So, how will the state find money to pay for things? This week, Wyoming learned that Wyoming residents rank 48th in the nation in the amount of tax money they pay. Buck McVeigh is the director of the Wyoming Taxpayers Association, and he says the state may need to revisit its tax structure. When you look at the overall uh, tax structure in Wyoming and the fact that we tax minerals at 100 percent, and then it falls way down from that. We, we tax the uh, commercial industrial properties at nine and, or at 11 and percent, and then residential at nine and, uh, 9.5 uh, percent of assessed valuation. So dramatic uh, disparity between uh, what minerals pay and what, what we as residents pay. Uh, I think there is an argument that, uh, you know, we as residents could pay more uh, if we had to. That, that's, I, I know, something the Appropriations Committee is, as we're speaking, uh, is involved with is trying to see what they can cut back in. And, and they're they're making cuts, but you're finding that probably finding 300 to $400 million uh, in, in budget reductions is probably going to be a, a little bit of a challenge, to say the least. Can you also come up with that kind of money, though, without really you know, really impacting folks? Uh, no, you can't, Bob. We've, um, there's a reason that government has grown to the level that it is today, and it's, it's because of legislators listening to their uh, constituents and, and, and their, their people's needs. Uh, without absolute cutting of total programs and the reduction of, of, of just really hundreds of jobs, uh, you're not going to be able to uh, trim government to the level that meets the current financial or the, the current revenue uh, uh, structure that we're in right now. You and I both have uh, been through studies of our revenue picture, and, and Tax 2000 is one that a lot of people uh, reference. I know you did in a recent column. And essentially what that was, Buck, maybe you could explain that to listeners, was was a thorough study of, of possible revenues in the state? You know, the, the Tax Reform 2000 was a was a study that uh, uh, really was mandated in, in the 99-2000 era when the state was facing uh, a very similar budget crisis to what we're facing right now. And it identified uh, a vast amount of, uh, of problems. And uh, the Tax Reform 2000 report uh, clearly identified that Wyoming's tax structure lacks equity, stability, and balance. And so figure that, Bob, that that's 16 years ago. And, and uh, what are the probably the, the biggest uh, 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 arguments on, uh, on Wyoming's tax structure today, and that's equity, stability, and, and balance. So consequently, they came up with a very, very good report. Uh, it was chock full of uh, ideas and recommendations as to uh, what Wyoming could do to uh, augment its tax structure 
to create a more stable and more equitable environment. It it just seems like we don't do a great job of, and, and maybe this is just a function of government, who knows, but looking long-term and identifying some of the problems we might be facing, identifying where we're going to get money, that sort of thing. I mean, given the fact that we always manage to find, or we have managed to find a rabbit in the hat or two in the past, uh, has made us kind of victims of of our own success, if you will. Are, is anybody, uh, have, have you had conversations with lawmakers and others? Are, are people uh, in agreement that they maybe need to do some of this and, and look at some of these issues? When you look at the makeup of of our 90 legislators uh, and, and you look back on their uh, on their longevity, how, uh, how long they've been in office, there's not a great deal of, of uh, uh, legislators that are still with us, uh, still uh, in the legislature, that have been through some of these these tough times uh, of the past. So uh, a lot of this is new ground for, for these legislators, and, and uh, they may be a little bit less reluctant to look, to look ahead at, at, at other tax options than, than the senior uh, players that have uh, been engaged in, in similar effort, efforts of the past. Well, I actually was going to ask you about that. I wondered if you had seen some of the younger people like, hell no, we're not going to look at any tax increases. Well, uh, certainly the mentality of of, uh, of the legislature, in my opinion, it has gotten a lot more conservative over time. And, and so with that comes the, uh, certainly the reluctance to even entertain the notion of, of, uh, of a tax increase. Uh, again, you know, n- none of us really like to to pay taxes or or in essence like to see our taxes uh, go up but the reality of it is that we we rely on on tax revenues to uh, support the way we live from from our uh, uh, police protection to our highways uh, just to uh, just our our lifestyle. What you're simply proposing is let's even out the revenue so we don't have to have these big spikes, right? That would certainly uh, go a step in, in helping to stabilize our tax system uh, and, and get us away from some of these uh, vast swings that we've uh, that we've experienced in the past. Uh, Buck McVeigh uh, joining us from the Wyoming Taxpayers Association. I'm looking forward to you convincing uh, folks to. Uh, Maybe take a close look at this, and we'll chat more with you as the legislative session proceeds. That uh, sounds good, Bob. Thank you very much. When we come back, a story on how Congress could help women on the Wind River Reservation. And we continue our discussion about suicide. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. For victims of violent crime on the Wind River Indian Reservation, finding help and safety after an attack can be hard. A lack of funding means there are very few services for crime victims there. 
Recently, the only safe house for victims of sexual assault on Wind River closed down when its funding went dry, forcing victims to risk traveling to shelters in nearby towns off the reservation. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, a new bill recently introduced in Congress would make it easier for tribes to get money to run their own safe house. It took Northern Arapaho member Kendra Smith over a year of pushing back deadlines and writing grants to start the Wind River Reservation Sex Offender Registry. She says being a victim of sexual assault herself, she felt driven to make her community safer. She now posts a list of 51 people on the reservation who've been convicted of sexual crimes. She says that's a lot in a population of 12,000. Now that is not counting the ones that are still out there that we have not even picked up. Nationwide, as many as two-thirds of sexual assaults are never reported. and Many suspect it's much worse on the country's reservations. Smith says being molested has left hard questions that have lingered a lifetime. Here's the question I can't answer. <sighs> Did I ask my dad, my stepdad, <laughs> to molest me? No. There's the key. No freaking stepkid asks to get molested. Smith says being abused as a child left her afraid to report as an adult. She says she's been raped multiple times over her life by strangers and acquaintances. Never once did she press charges. And I don't know if I, if I would have survived the trauma of court because, holy smokes, I would have had to tell my mom Fremont County Safe House Director Sidney Mahler says about 60 percent of her shelter clients in Riverton are Native American, and she's seen that a lack of family support for victims is common. She says that's why safe shelters are so important for Native communities. The victim's own mother is saying, well, why did you go report him? And you're like, ah. <laughs> so when we have a situation like that, you know, it's almost always a shelter situation. She says whether it's on the reservation or off, a shelter is a place to learn how to file charges, make a plan for the future, and get counseling. These are crucial, she says, when the fear of losing your community is as terrifying as physical violence. Even the victim's own family might support the batterer instead of the victim because when the victim goes outside of that community, it's kind of turning your back on the whole community. And she says rape on Wind River is almost the rule not the exception. Best numbers I get are anywhere between 95 and 100 percent of women and girls on the reservation will experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetime. That's massive trauma in a community with very limited resources. Mahler says, sure, it'd be ideal if Native women could go to a safe house on the reservation since it would make it easier for women to seek help inside a community they trust. But since they can't, she's doing what she can to make them feel welcome. The shelter has been blessed by a medicine man and... If she requests that she wants a medicine man or a native healer there with her, we will make it happen. Um, We have the phone numbers to call. Eastern Shoshone member and Fremont County attorney Sarah Robinson volunteers for the sexual assault advocacy group Safe Stars. She says it's great that the county's safe house is culturally welcoming, but the reservation needs its own shelter too. She says when tribal-run services disappear... Community norms that aren't always friendly to women may fill that void. Because of the way, you know, courts work, law enforcement works, investigations work, 
it just kind of moves along too slow for them. So then they're thinking, well, we're just going to deal with it our way, whatever that means. Robinson describes a recent case against a grandfather who allegedly sexually abused three of his granddaughters. They have not moved anywhere in that because the rest of the family then is kind of protecting him. And so now they're the ones that are, have been excluded. Robinson says the reason Sacred Shield, the reservation shelter, closed down was a lack of money. The federal government distributes over $2 billion a year for all victims of crime in the U.S. through the Department of Justice. But most years, the country's 562 tribes are divvying up less than 1% of that. We're just all still just fighting over those little pieces. Wyoming U.S. Senator John Barrasso wants to increase the size of those pieces. He's chair of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs that recently introduced the SURVIVE Act, or the Securing Urgent Resources Vital to Indian Victim Empowerment Act. Indian Affairs Committee Staff Director Mike Andrews says this act would eliminate the middlemen and funnel more money directly to tribes. It's the tribes and the Department of Interior that will be uh, working on the distribution amount and really cutting the red tape of going through uh, the Department of Justice or uh, the states. He says if it passes, the bill would give tribes five times more Victims of Crime Act funds than they're currently receiving. So let's just say, for example, if this year the VOCA amount is $2.2 billion, 5% of that, you're looking at anywhere from $100-$105 million that will uh, be generated for Indian country to use for victim services. The SURVIVE Act recently moved out of committee with strong bipartisan support. It now heads to the Senate for a vote. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Since the 1960s, federal law has sent people who have been committed to a mental institution or found mentally defective by a legal authority cannot buy guns. This month, the feds announced new rules clarifying that states are not violating patient privacy when they submit mental health records to the National Background Check System. Without getting those records, that system cannot catch people who are not allowed to purchase firearms. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports, Wyoming is one of six states that does not regularly submit mental health records. Before you can buy a gun at Frontier Arms in Cheyenne, you have to fill out a form. It asks questions like, are you addicted to drugs or have you been convicted of a felony? Owner Ryan Allen says, for most things, there's no use lying. When we're talking about an actual crime, it's going to come up. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That's because Allen feeds the info into the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, which is constantly updated with conviction data from Wyoming and every other state. But Wyoming does not send mental health records to that system. So Allen has no way to know if a customer is legally banned from buying a gun for mental health reasons. 
Allen says gun rights and gun culture are really important here, which is why he wishes Wyoming would submit those records. To protect that culture, I would think that it would be very important to make sure that, you know, we're not allowing people who are mentally ill or sick to be able to own or purchase uh, new firearms. Wyoming is one of six states that have submitted less than 100 mental health records to the background check system since it was created in the 90s. In the last five years, more than a thousand people in Wyoming have been committed to a mental health institution. That's at least a thousand names that should be on the list. The feds don't force states to submit mental health records, and Wyoming officials say they can't until state law changes. State Senator Kurt Meyer was against a 2014 bill that would have done that. I think the federal government has shown a propensity to try to get control of guns. Meyer says he's worried that even this kind of record sharing could be a slippery slope to a weakening of Second Amendment rights. Whenever you send records back at the state level back to the federal government, I think it's the, I guess, the proverbial camel's nose under the tent as far as then developing a uh, database so they can have a federal gun registration. William Rosen says this kind of worry over submitting mental health records is unwarranted. It should be the least controversial thing that you could imagine. Rosen is with Every Town for Gun Safety, an advocacy group. He says gun rights advocates want to focus on mental health and enforcing existing laws. And this does that. Submitting mental health records is even supported by the National Rifle Association. The number of states that submit almost no such records to the background check system fell from 23 five years ago to just six today, according to Rosen's group. And Rosen says he's optimistic that number will keep shrinking. If there's one thing we can agree on, it's that the small number of people in this country who are dangerously mentally ill should not have easy access to firearms. But in Wyoming, there is no consensus. This year, no legislators have yet expressed interest in bringing a bill to keep guns out of the hands of those deemed dangerously mentally ill. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. As we continue our series looking at serious mental health issues, we turn our attention to a workbook intended to help those with these serious issues change their outlook. Dr. Victor Asher was a longtime clinical psychologist at the Sheridan VA and a current private practitioner in Sheridan who deals with those who have serious mental illness. He is joined by his editor and former suicide prevention specialist Vanessa Hastings. Dr. Asher's book is called Self-Acceptance, the Key to Recovery from Mental Illness. He explains the purpose behind the workbook. Well, I was uh, given the opportunity to start a special program at the VA back in uh, 1991, and it was designed to help people with serious mental illness uh, recover and be able to move out of the hospital. At that time at the VA in Sheridan, we had a large number of people uh, veterans who had been in the hospital for long periods. There were programs that uh, made, uh, that were, allowed the teaching of um, social skills, you know, starting conversations, uh, budget management, um, uh, recreation skills, and so on. 
but there was nothing uh, that I could find that focused on uh, changing the way a person that has had a mental illness for a long time uh, would feel about themselves. They just didn't exist, so I, I thought, well, I need to start developing that because when people have a serious mental illness, it really profoundly affects how they, how they regard themselves. And if they're going to recover, they have to change that. I was curious if you were thinking always about the person that had the mental illness or also maybe people close to them. Well, you know, the mental illness affects the whole family, of course, um, and especially if the mental illness is, is fairly uh, severe. It, it has a, a very negative effect on the whole family relationship situation. So, um, you know, the families are looking for resources to help their their member, you know, achieve a level of recovery. Um, so, yes, it, it, it's a family matter. And so uh, what, the self-acceptance part of all of this, and, and one of the reasons that you, you wrote this, so why is it so critical that, that people are feeling okay about themselves? If you don't feel okay about yourself, you're not going to do the work that's required to recover because it's very difficult to, to turn your life around when you have experienced a lot of loss related to your mental illness. If people are going to be able to to do that hard work of of restoring their lives, they have to believe in themselves. Vanessa Hastings is also visiting with us on. Vanessa, you've done a lot of work with suicide prevention over the years. With these people, as, as things get worse, I mean, it, I, I imagine you would see the effort by Dr. Asher here is, is important. A lot of the data shows that most people who attempt or complete suicide have an underlying mental illness that has gone untreated or either isn't being treated properly or the person just gave up their treatment. So getting to me, this type of a book, this tool, really can head off suicidality altogether. Maybe explain to the listeners just a little bit about what somebody who is in that that suicide state, uh, you know, kind of what's their world like? My reason for working in suicide prevention was because I had family members I'd lost or who suffered from suicidality. And I hadn't really experienced that myself until this past summer when I came was diagnosed with a, an autoimmune disorder that's pretty disabling. It's just you're just in a place where you just you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you don't see a way out, and then you start thinking, well, this is a way out. And, but because I had the training that I do, I was able to kind of pull myself back, even though I was white knuckling it, and call a friend who I knew had training and say, you've got to help me out here because I'm on the edge. And he called my other friends, he called my husband, he, he helped me just get that safety net around me, which I think is what everybody in the world deserves. I mean, really within about an hour, I was calmed down. And that's what they say. If you can get to a suicidal person within an hour and help them, their chances of completing suicide go down tremendously. The workbook is Self-Acceptance, the Key to Recovery from Mental Illness. Dr. Victor Asher is the author. Can you talk about a couple of the key points? Um, well, I, I would say that one of the key points is hope. And uh, without hope, people don't, don't recover. And um, there's a specific section in the workbook that uh, addresses hope, but the, the sense of hope along with the idea of being able to accept yourself is, 
is is pretty crucial. Um, and I think as people use the workbook, they they begin to change the way they think about themselves. And then I think that's another key point that the, just by um, going through the exercises, um, there's a, an opportunity to to focus on um, on who you are as a person, what are your strengths as a person, where are your limits, and how you can go forward with your life. Uh, Vanessa, I'm kind of curious. Do you ever feel like you you'll see a point where you're recovered? That's a good question. And to me, recovery is just like in the world of substance abuse. It's it's ongoing. I don't see that ever ending for me. I have to be very aware of all the choices I make in my life in order to keep my depression in remission. That means sometimes I choose not to listen to dark music or watch heavy-duty movies or read books that might be dark. Um, I have to be careful about the people with whom I choose to spend my time, what I eat. Dr. Asher, is that the right answer? Is that is that what recovery generally is? It, it, yes, generally that is the case. We're not talking about a cure. Uh, we're just talking about learning to live well with a problem. They can live a, a very decent life, and you can say that about arthritis. You can say that about heart disease. How do we pick up this workbook? Um, you can get it from uh, Amazon pretty easily, and you can also go to Central Recovery Press, and you can order it right off of their website. It's called Self-Acceptance, the Key to Recovery from Mental Illness. It's available right now. I want to thank both of you, Dr. Asher and Vanessa Hastings, for visiting with us, and uh, we wish you well with your effort, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you. When we come back, we'll take a look at the future of indie music. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. A new position at the Wyoming Arts Council is working to grow the state's independent music scene. Danae Hunzi is the council's community development and music specialist. She spent last fall traveling Wyoming and talking with musicians, venues, and policymakers. Now the Arts Council is launching several new initiatives to strengthen independent music. Hunzi spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. And one of these is called the Wyoming Independent Music Initiative. And this is for artists themselves, for musicians, right? 
So when you're talking about growing the independent music scene of Wyoming, there's different parts. We have to grow the artistic side for musicians and support it through that side. We have to grow the nonprofit, the venue side, so that there's places to play. And so one of the approaches that we found was through talking through musicians is that they felt like they don't have the support, which is very true. There's never been one office for them to go to um, in regards to starting a career, what that even looks like, and how to define success. And so um, through the conversations that I had, we decided that one great way to do that would be to create this Wyoming Independent Music Initiative. And we will start this program in February with 10 bands here in Laramie. And we uh, made a pitch to the Wyoming Technology Business Center to be a supporter of that program because we realized for musicians to be successful, they also need to be business savvy. And it will be a six-series workshop that we will host one-on-ones with them in regards to developing a website, electronic press kits, um, developing photos and videos so that people across the state and across the country can see what they sound like, what they look like, all of those things that are important to take the next steps. And then it will culminate in a showcase event where the bands will actually get to play for industry folks, um, hopefully so that they can take that next step. And then there's the uh, independent music tour that's happening as well. Yeah, the independent music tour has been a Um, a discussion and an idea that's brewing for quite a few years now, and it's finally coming together to launch later this spring. It's a partnership with Westaf, which is our regional arts organization, um, and 12 of the member states have all contributed to this idea. And the hope is um, twofold as well. One, to get Wyoming musicians out there touring not only in Wyoming, but also in our region and across the country. And then the other piece is also it allows communities across Wyoming to use a block booking model. So essentially what it does is it allows them to book artists that they would not be able to afford otherwise, but because they're going to play at multiple places in one state, we get them at a lower rate. And so it increases, you know, communities access to these artists that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so access being a big part of this, uh, that's where this database comes in that you're developing as well. Probably the biggest theme, actually, from all the conversations that we had was there's no way for people, so for musicians to find venues to play at, and there's no way for venues to find these amazing musicians that we have hiding in our state um, to book shows. And so instead, they're going outside of Wyoming. And so what we're trying to do is create a robust directory for people to get on and be able to locate musicians based off of genres, based off of location, and the same on the venue side. So where you could look at venues based on location, size, fees, all of the things that are important. What's the measure of success for these things? We're trying to develop those metrics right now. And I always shy away from this from the beginning because music in itself is a commodity. And oftentimes, When you're looking at music from the policy development side of things and at the state level, like many of our surrounding states are doing the same things. We've seen it in some of the bigger states like California, Nashville, Texas with Austin. Um, Music is always looked at through the economic development lens, and it's critical to that. And music brings money. It brings tourists. There's even a thing called music tourism. So I think at the end of the day, those hard numbers will be the stats that will drive the independent music scene in Wyoming and continue the growth. Um, But it's also important to remember that it is an art and it's important in that value too, which is why I feel fortunate that it is under the Arts Council because there are some not necessarily quantitative metrics that we could get, but it's still contributing to the overall morale and cohesion of our state. 
What about funding for these initiatives? Funding for these, we've been very lucky in finding key partnerships. Um, There's natural partnerships with Wyoming Tourism, with the Wyoming Technology Business Center, and the university. And so we have found the power in numbers and that a lot of the things we want to do, the funding isn't actually the deal breaker. It's actually just finding the knowledge and educating people. Wyoming is full of talent. So when you start talking to people, you find that yeah, there's somebody from Wyoming that works, you know, in Nashville, or there's somebody that's doing great things, and they're always willing to support their own. Um, and so just finding those connections has made it possible without a lot of funding. So a lot of announcements here, lots to do, of course, with these projects. Uh, but looking ahead, what's next? That I mean, I think that that is at the end, that's what I'm working on is how does this fit within a strategic plan, right? We have three big goals of what my position is supposed to do in regards to the independent music scene. And that's what should be driving all of these smaller programs that we're doing. So right now, that's what we're working on is developing one year, three year, five year goals of what we do actually want to achieve. This is a step by step. Yeah, it is yeah. a step by step. Yeah. yeah. And these feed into the bigger goals. Absolutely. And I, it takes these programs to figure out what those big goals are. A lot of research has been done and there's still a lot of research that needs to be done before I feel like um, we can make any of those huge policy decisions. For example, Colorado actually is uh, releasing a live music policy through the governor's office later this spring, which is incredible and probably something that we would like to do in the future as well. But this has been in the works for five, six years of research and consultants. Um, So we're just trying to shape now what that looks like within a Wyoming context. That's Danae Hunzi. She's the new community development and music specialist at the Wyoming Arts Council, working to grow Wyoming's independent music scene. She spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. Shake memories and take calls. I'm the type of person who remembers faces. Especially if I'm looking up from afar. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the show or want to hear a segment again, simply go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. On that site, you can pitch us ideas for future shows and link to our podcast. You can also sign up for that podcast on iTunes. We also encourage you to become a fan of our Facebook page and to follow all our reporters on Twitter. We'll be off next week, but we'll return the following week with a preview of the Wyoming legislative session and other issues. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.